everyone. It's Teresa Judice, and I'm so excited to announce the Namaste Bitches are going on tour. What, what? Oh my gosh, Teresa and Melissa Feaster, that's me. We are bringing the party to Fillmore Silver Springs on Friday, November 11th. So get your tickets now at LiveNation.com. It's the Namaste Bitches live and in person in D.C. How dope is that? We can't wait to see you. Namaste Bitches live in D.C. Get your tickets now at LiveNation.com. Today's episode is brought to you by DB. DB is a Scandinavian brand that makes backpacks and bags to help people on the move stay ready for anything. From the streets to peaks... DB's gear is travel tested by some of the best world athletes, adventurers, and creators. Over the past decade, DB has designed and developed, released, and refined the best bags in the market. With DB's patented hookup system, you are able to attach smaller products to your backpack, roller, or tote. We are teaming up with DB to exclusively offer our listeners 10% off your next purchase by using the code POD10. We're going to the link in our show notes. DB, it's time to move on and time to get going. Hey guys, so welcome back to the show. So today is a very exciting episode because we have a guest. His name is Owen Grower. He's currently a CEO at True Fire Studios. And before that, he was a CEO at Pocket Cast. And before that, he was working at iHeartMedia. He had multiple positions at this place. He was executive vice president. And before that, he was a senior vice president and a general manager. So he has so much experience under his belt and he's sharing all of his experience on this podcast and actually way more uh there is definitely so much to take away from this episode so i can't wait for you guys to hear this so let's roll the tape hi owen thank you so much for coming to the show it's my pleasure to be here thanks for having me so you're actually one of the very first guests who are like not from my social media channels or anyone I have met. Uh, it's from my family side. So I am very excited to uh, talk to you more. So can you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. So I've spent the last 22 years at the intersection of technology, media, music, and commerce. And um, it's been an incredible wild ride. When I started in, um, in my field, the internet was just starting to emerge as a new media platform and nobody knew what to make of it really. And I was working at the time doing uh, studio production for artists that were assigned to Sony Music International here in New York City. So I worked with artists from Japan, artists from LA, artists from New York. Um, I worked with The Roots. I worked with the R&B act, Tony, Tony, Tony. I worked with incredible producers. I worked um, with Jill Scott. I had an opportunity to work with lots of really cool R&B artists. And um, one of the artists that I worked with who was uh, from Tokyo originally, an incredible soul singer, believe it or not, was gifted by one of his fans a website in his name. And the fan was essentially managing this very early 1996 or 1997 era website devoted to this artist and handed it over to us 
to manage on behalf of the artists. And I thought to myself, wow, the opportunities for fans and creators to connect is just going to blow up. And I thought specifically it was going to be really critical um, as it uh, related to music in particular. And at that moment, I thought to myself, well, this is sort of where I want to spend the rest of my career at that intersection. Yeah. And I haven't always succeeded in doing that, but I have um, built on that dream that I originally had in the mid nineties. Yeah. So did you always like, did you ever picture yourself like to be in the music industry or it just happened to be that? Like, did you even play anything uh, back then when you were little? Yeah. So I played in bands starting in the eighth grade. Wow. So when I was uh, in thir- 13 and 14 years old and played in bands all through high school, uh, I was such a devoted music fan and for me music was an inextricable part of my identity and back then because i'm old um you know music was not just something you liked it was really a defining element of your personality in a way that it's hard to describe um and really the reason i say that is because i was into a lot of um punk and what you might call off off uh, left of center music, right? Music that mm-hmm. was not played on the radio, not even music you can find on MTV very much, except for maybe late at night on the weekends. And so um, being involved in the punk and hardcore scene in New York City was uh, who I was. It was it was how I found myself. And uh, it was a prism through which I really, um, you know, explored my identity. Yeah. Did you ever like think of like, pursuing yourself as a musician and like I never it's hard to say you know I always loved playing in bands I don't think I ever thought that I would not go to college I think I always felt like I was going to have a relatively conventional career of some kind I don't think I ever fooled myself into thinking that any of the bands I was in was ever good enough to like sign a record deal and also at that time given the kind of music I was into signing a record deal was not really the idea. It was more about expression. It was more about expression and being part of a scene and, you know, making friends and gigging and having fun. Um, So no, I don't think I ever thought of it as a career choice for me. Although some of my friends in that scene with me did go on and have pretty good careers uh, as musicians. Um, But I didn't know anybody in the music industry. I didn't have like an uncle or an aunt in the business and I didn't really have any connections. So I really struggled for a long time to understand what my role could be. Who could I talk to? Who could I get advice from? And um, that was always a challenge. And, and really through my 20s, trying to figure out what, uh, what handhold I could, I, I could get and what door I could open. It was always something on my mind for the longest time. So what was the, like, let's just say someone like who wants to essentially start in this industry, but maybe like maybe in the future as a musician, but more like get their foot in the door. What would you say like that first thing you did, but maybe something that people can do now? You know, when I was younger, there was no such thing as LinkedIn. You know, <laughs> there was no way to use the web to, to do research on companies and people and roles and job descriptions or any of that, right? I got my first paid job in the music industry um, from a help wanted ad in the New York Times. That used to be a big part of um, how newspapers made money was by listing job openings. 
And that just doesn't exist anymore. And there was no Indeed.com or Monster.com or job boards of any kind when I was coming up. And so I just feel like one of the advantages of coming up now is anybody who's interested in the industry can do research for free as long as you've got an internet connection and reach out to people. And so the first thing is to know what it is that you're looking for. I get asked a lot to take calls from people who are interested in learning about entertainment or the music industry or internet career opportunities um, or broadcasting or podcasting, Mm because those are all things that I've been involved in. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the first, the first piece of feedback I give somebody is, you know, do you have a sense of what kind of company you want to work for a and B what kind of role, what kind of role do you want to play? What kind of job? Because even inside of a music company, there are people who do marketing, people who do sales, people who do promotion, people who do, you know, artists and repertoire. There are lots of different roles to play, legal roles, finance roles. I would say like there is definitely so much that even like not just music industry or entertainment in almost like any industry is like you kind of have to have like a clear idea of like what area you want to go for. Because I know even for myself when I was studying like design, like graphic design, even graphic design is such a broad field. Like you can do so much like there's web design, there's motion design, like I didn't even know, like when I was like graduating, I was like, well, I, I did, I studied all of it, but I don't know what interest I want to, I want to go for. So I, I definitely agree with you on that. Like, that's why it's so important to, I feel like do internships or maybe part-time jobs just to figure out, to see what is something that you might like. Right. I think that makes a lot of sense. And in internships, it can be really hard to find, but you know, you can do research and you know, what I would find is you can't be afraid to ask people for their time, right? Um, I, in my in my role, um, I'm in my late 40s now, and I've been doing this since the mid-90s in some way, shape, or form. Uh, and um, I tend to be happy to have uh, conversations with people who are directed if I can help because I want to I, I want to contribute um, something back. Mm-hmm. And I'm happy to try to help people, but I can't help people unless they have a sense of what it is that they need and what they're looking for. But I do think that you, you know, that anybody out there is listening that shouldn't be afraid to ask. The worst thing that's going to happen is someone will say no. <laughs> you know, the best thing is you can make a connection with somebody and you, you can learn something or even potentially uh, get a tip for a job. That is for sure. And this is actually a great segue to what I wanted to ask, because you have had like several jobs in the past and like very good ones too. You were a CEO at PocketCast and before that you worked with iHeartRadio they keep changing the name, so I get so confused. I'm going to ask you that too, because there's iHeartMedia, then there's yeah. iHeart uh, Podcast Network. I'm pretty yeah. sure they're all under the same umbrella, but you can you can explain to me, because you were uh, a senior vice president and also general manager. So what did you learn from all the experiences? Let's start with the iHeartRadio, but also why did you leave, if you would like to share? I'm just curious. Yeah, I'm happy to share. I'm really happy to share. So... Um, let, let's start at the beginning. I, when I joined iHeartRadio in 2005, the company was called Clear Channel. And okay, it was I a know, company, that, right? Yeah. It was a company that owned radio stations and had an outdoor billboard business. I mean, they have more than just billboard, but they, they still have those businesses. 
but that was the name of the company when I joined. And I started in 2005 and my role there, I first had a business development role, which just meant that we were looking for ways to create partnerships um, that helped the company make money on the digital side of the business. So I worked on the digital side of the business. At that time, what did digital mean in Clear Channel? We had radio stations, they had websites, we had personalities like Elvis Duran or The Breakfast Club or Ryan Seacrest, and they had websites. So overseeing all of the digital properties of the company. And it seemed kind of funky, but you know, the reason I took the job was because I had very important people in my life explain to me that a company this big that didn't have like a really good perception, that there was a turnaround opportunity, that there were lots of great assets that people didn't appreciate. And if you made some good moves, you could really not only help the company grow, but you could grow your career because it's not like the company had uh, any kind of reputation at all for, for you know, doing anything impressive on the digital front, right? Websites, they didn't really, there was no, you know, there wasn't like there was a music service or anything like that. So in 2008, um, about three years into my tenure there, uh, I worked on a project that was called iHeart Music. It was a website that I, that I project managed or a product, I should say product managed. And um, within a few months of that, we had launched a mobile app. And 2008 is when the App Store launched. And the <laughs> app was called iHeartRadio. And then Got they it. renamed the company <laughs> after the app that we built, right? So the umbrella company is called iHeartMedia. And that owns all the radio stations and the digital assets and so on. The digital service and the brand, the consumer-facing brand is iHeartRadio. Hopefully that answers your question. Yes, yes. So is that, uh, I'm also curious because this will be also for other people, is also iHeart Podcast Network, which is, you know, ads and also a bunch of deals with the celebrities and the podcast. Is it also part of it or that's just like a yes, separate? It's 100% okay. part of it. So so um, when I was at iHeart, we started to very heavily invest in podcasting. First, we started with the existing radio station personalities and some additional personalities that, and, and hosts that we brought in. And then in 2018, after I'd left the company, they made an investment in a company called Stuff Media. Um, mm -hmm. The big podcast in Stuff Media is How Stuff Works, although they have many, many other podcasts. Mm -hmm. And they brought in that entire team, and then they built out a huge podcasting network. But everybody in the company is podcasting crazy, right? They really got religion on it, and they were able to build out a significant business. I think they're the number one podcaster um, in the country. They're even bigger than NPR now. Wow, I had no idea. So yeah, yeah that's why, and I feel like uh, iHeartRadio is so big now because they have signed a bunch of podcasts with like very famous people. Uh, but I feel like all of them are competing. Like Spotify is doing their Spotify originals. Yes. Then yes. I'm sure Apple is gonna start at one point. Like I feel like there's definitely so many. So why, why, what was the reason that you decided to um, leave the you know very big company? Because I feel like it's so known that you would maybe want to stay longer, but. I was there for 12 years. Wow. Yeah. And I never expected to stay there for 12 years. And, you know, I was very unique inside the company and very fortunate. Usually at a company like that, particularly a company that has a, um, a strong background in broadcast media, for them it was radio. You know, you, you get pigeonholed, right? Either you sell radio ads or you are involved in the programming of radio stations or the promotion or marketing of radio stations. And you generally don't get to switch between the different areas. I, I came in on the digital. I came in on the digital side of the business, and I had a new job inside of that company every twelve to eighteen months. So if you look at my LinkedIn, <laughs> you're free to look me up. I, yeah. you know, it's LinkedIn. You can see it's all public. 
you know, starting in 2005, I was first director of business development and then I moved into marketing and then I took on a content role and then, and just every 12 to 18 months. And part of that was the digital business there was nascent. It was new. It really didn't have any grounding to it. Um, and then we launched iHeart and iHeart became its own engine, its own beast, if you will. Right. And then there was a huge management change and new C a new CEO came in in 2010 and 2011 and he reorged the entire company. And so therefore I took on different roles. And then I helped to build out the entertainment division inside the company. And then, and then I moved back to run the digital team. And, and so I just kept having different jobs. But I'll tell you, a few things happened. One of them was my father got ill and I was worried about uh, his care. And then the second thing was the company after 12 years, I, I was ready for a new challenge. I, I still feel like my uh, like uh, like that company is my family and I'm still in touch with so many of my friends uh, and colleagues there. And I, I have a great deal of admiration and respect for what they do. But every once in a while, you need a new challenge. And I was ready for a new challenge. I feel it. Yeah. So well, what was the experience comparing like I had radio to PocketCast, which wasn't long time ago, but I assume because I had radio so big, PocketCast was maybe on a smaller scale, but at least from yeah. what I can experience, what I can tell, but you're you can right. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, you're absolutely mm -hmm. right. And one of the things I wanted to do was I wanted to have an opportunity to run and manage a company on my own um, and implement my own vision. And um, PocketCast was, I thought, a really great opportunity. I've been working a lot on podcasting at iHeart, particularly in the last few months I was there, and I knew it was going to grow and expand. And I, um, when I left iHeart, I really didn't have a plan. I don't necessarily recommend that. But after, you know, I had graduated from grad school in 2003, and I basically worked for 15 years nonstop. Um, and, and, you know, I always had a sense of where I wanted to go and what I wanted to tackle next. And I just didn't want to have to have a plan. I, I was a little maybe ready for a break, you might say. Got it. Right. And and so I I left the company, although they wanted me to stay on as a consultant. So I, I had a consultancy arrangement with them. But I, I left the full time role in May of 2017. And within a few weeks, I started getting calls from people. You know, what are you doing? You know, do you have time? Can we talk? What have you? And I was uh, close with the woman who was running New York Public Radio, WNYC at the time. And she called me and she said, look, I'm working on a podcasting project. I'd love your, you know, love your eyes on this. Would you be willing to take a look? And over the course of the following months, I just basically helped her, consulted to her, worked with her, worked with the NPR folks and several other um, public radio institutions. And, you know, eventually they offered me the job. Um, they had invested in this platform called Pocket Cast. They wanted me to, to come in and run it. And it came together pretty organically, but it came together through this relationship I had established. And I wanted the opportunity to run something on my own. And so that was sort of my jumping off point. Got it. Got it. So um, how was the, like, did you always knew that like the podcasting is going to like take off? Like, because I personally had no idea about podcasting, like maybe two years ago, like that's when I discovered. But did you always know that like that was going to be uh, like a, this channel that's going to grow up or it's more like it just happened to be? You know, it's interesting. Um, to be honest, I started listening to podcasts back when I had an iPod. <laughs> and you'd plug your iPod into your Mac or even your lap, your, your, um, you know, windows laptop mm -hmm. and, you know, your iTunes would, would load up and then you would literally sideload a podcast, you know, from your computer onto your, onto your iPod. And I thought it was really interesting. I wasn't sure it was a business, but I thought it was fun. 
And then um, when we were in the process of reinventing iHeartRadio, I would say in 2011, 2012, at that point I was head of product for iHeart. And we had a point of view about taking a whole bunch of our spoken word content at iHeart and developing these um, you know, uh, custom podcasts that people could decide you know, what did they want? Did they want some news? Did they want some stories about uh, politics or maybe they wanted some sports updates or what have you? And we built this product called iHeart Talk. And um, we understood that podcasts were, were growing, but we still weren't sure it was a business. We just thought it was a fun feature. And, you know, I would say that it took me a couple of years, but by the time 2016, 2017 rolled around, it was pretty clear to me that um, the number of really bright, smart, creative people who are in the space, the fact that the business was growing every year, just a little bit every year, but, but consistent and steady growth from a listenership standpoint, from a revenue standpoint. But I wouldn't say I was an early adopter. I was certainly aware of them early. But I became a more heavy, habituated listener and user probably around 2015. Got it. Got it. So now you are with uh, True Fire Studios. Would mm-hmm. you say you kind of went back to music because of because you always like, cared so much about the industry? I know it's like similar industries, like entertainment at the end of the day. But uh, Pocket Cast was strictly podcast, right? Like there was, right. I, I don't think there was anything else. But True Fire Studios is, um, it's, it's essentially entertainment. It's a platform for musicians, you know, they can learn. Uh, you can definitely explain more about it. But is that the reason uh, you chose the True Fire Studios or it's just opportunity came along and you decided it was the right time? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I would say that I've lived a pretty opportunistic life and, um, uh, my career has been aleatory, and by that I mean governed by chance and fate. Uh, I, I haven't always had a five-year plan. I mean, I think when I was at iHeart, I had a sense of how I, uh, and, and, and you know, during that 12-year span, I had a sense of how I wanted to progress my career. But that was you know, within the confines of a specific company and knowing how things operated there. But in general, it's not like I had some grand master plan. What I like to do is you know stay in touch with people who I think are interesting in the industry, you know make myself available to have conversations with folks like you or anybody in the space, and so as a result, sometimes people find me. In the case of uh, True Fire Studios, I was uh, I was contacted by 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 a man called Bob Carrigan, who completely coincidentally had worked with some of the leadership at iHeart when they were all together at AOL back in the early two thousands, and so he. And I didn't know each other, but he was connected to me through people that we knew in common. And he called me and he said, look, I'm, I'm making an investment in this online music education platform with um, a few other investors. And I can't run it because I'm about to take a job to run Audible. You know? wow. So he took, okay. he took the role as CEO of Audible and he, and, and he said, so I'd like to talk to you about whether you're interested in taking a look at this. And that's what it was. It was just a conversation. And that was in December of 2019. Boy, were we uh, a lot younger, naive, more naive. And uh, you know, the world was a different place back <laughs> yes. then in yeah. December of 2019. <laughs> we were so innocent. We were so innocent. Um, but I took the call because you know, a call like that from someone like that, it, it seemed like you know, a no-brainer. Yeah. And of course, I called my friends at iHeart. I'm like, oh, who's this guy, Bob Carrigan? Oh, Bob's great. We love him, so on. And so it was very easy. And I had the conversation with him. I really like Bob. And he loves music the way I love music. And, you know, he comes from a completely different place and a different, 
you know, tastes in music, but he had the same passion. And I met his co-investors and I really liked them. And I made the hard decision to leave Pocket Casts to, um, to pursue this. And I think one of the main reasons that it was so appealing to me was it brought me back to the creative process of music making, which is so near and dear to my heart. Yeah, that's what I gather too, because I think you being in the, like really loving the industry, that makes sense that like why you would choose over it. Uh, and also I was looking up to, uh, it's a pretty old company. I, I didn't realize, yeah. I just thought like, because I think on LinkedIn, it says 2019, but I, then I went back to the website, it's like 1991. So it's been around uh, for quite a bit, right? Yeah. So the way to think about it is Truefire Studios is the umbrella company, the, the, um, the umbrella organization. And underneath that, we have four different music education businesses. Truefire is our flagship brand. We also have a company called Jamplay, which is focused also on guitar learning and is really um, oriented towards beginners and late beginners. Uh, and is uh, it covers styles like you know metal and rock and blues and so on, right? We also have a, a, a division called Artist Works, which is really focused on learning and taking lessons from master musicians. And so it's got a much more of a hands-on masterclass uh, approach to it, where you get to work directly with a musician in a specific genre. Very, very strong with bluegrass and, um, and other similar genres. And, uh, uh, and you get to upload your, your lessons, and then you get um, the, the instructor gives you direct feedback. And then the fourth division is called Fader Pro, and it's all EDM and dance music. So I see, I we see. cover lots of different genres, lots of instruments, um, and lots of styles of learning. No, that's great. Uh, that's actually, this is a good question that I want to ask. So actually, because I got this question from a bunch of people too, because they were curious. Some people actually find like online education overall, you know, sometimes hard because e-learning sometimes can be difficult depending on the subject obviously um so sometimes i feel like there's something missing comparing to what you would learn in person especially something like music i feel like it's very uh, like you need to connect to it uh so what would you say like that true fire studios does it differently versus like some other big companies i know like there's like another one that's like skillshare which has right. so many i mean that's one is very huge it's not really music based but there's definitely music uh, lessons in there as well I want to answer the question two different ways. The first mm -hmm. way I want to answer the question is there's a real big difference between knowledge learning and skill learning. Got it. So if you're talking about um, understanding, uh, you know, the history of a country, or if you want to learn facts and figures, right, then there's a whole bunch of tools and platforms out there that you can use for distance learning, e-learning. It's a big category. It's an exploding category. Um, particularly in the era of COVID, it's more important than ever. Does it replace in-person learning? Well, some people would argue, uh, you know, depending on the student, depending on the subject matter, right? Um, that maybe it leaves something to be desired, but certainly it's vital and important and only growing. We don't do knowledge learning. We're not telling you after you look at a course, um, we're not giving you a multiple choice questionnaire you know, how do you play a G chord? What we're doing is skill learning, right? And this is not to get a, a you know, a diploma in musicology. The <laughs> idea here is lifelong learning because you love music and it's supposed to bring you joy and satisfaction. It's really about self-realization, self-actualization, right? And in that way, it is more like a way to entertain yourself where you can build skills that, you know, help you feel good about what you're doing. I mean, uh, you know, no shots at social media, 
but if you spend too long in your Twitter feed, you know, you might get depressed about the, about, you know, the state of the world and people yeah. arguing and sniping back and mm -hmm. forth. Whereas if you spend that same amount of time building a skill that you care about, like learning how to play guitar or piano or drums or what have you, that's going to bring you a lot of joy and satisfaction, right? Even if it's hard, because the mastery of a skill like that is really about satisfaction and lifelong learning. So it's very, very different. That's the first way I'd answer the question. The second way to answer the question is, you know, the, the model that we're disrupting is the model where somebody literally comes to your house or you go to a music shop and you sit for an hour at a time with an instructor and maybe you like this person and maybe you don't. And maybe they like the kind of music that you like or maybe they don't. But that's what you get. And if you didn't get it in that hour, you got to go home and remember and practice. We're talking about a platform that has tens of thousands of different lessons across every imaginable genre, style of learning, methodology, um, you know, uh, uh, level, beginner, late beginner, intermediate, advanced, right? Where you can learn at your own pace with, with, with learning tools that you can't get on YouTube. You know, you can slow it down if you want to just focus on a phrase, loop a, a particular passage that you want to work on. And so just from the standpoint of the user experience, it provides for incredible flexibility for the learner, anytime access to the content, right? And just a huge catalog of content and, and instructors. We have 500 instructors, right? Across all of these different genres. And we've got tens of thousands of courses to choose from. A single instructor can never match that in terms of flexibility and in terms of value and in terms of, uh, of quality and, and, uh, and variety. So I just think it's totally different. Now, I think the problem that we have to solve, quite frankly, is not enough people who would like to learn even know that these services exist. So we have a challenge, not only to talk about all of the great products and learning tools that we have at Truefire Studios, but also just to let people know that, hey, this is a possibility. You don't have to rip the, you know, the, the, the cell phone number off the bottom of a flyer in your local coffee shop. You know, you can just go online and learn right from the comfort of your own home. No, I totally agree. I totally agree. Especially because like people feel so much better when they, instead of spending their time on social media or sometimes like Netflix, I would say, uh, then you, you don't even feel productive afterwards. So this is something right. that you can also feel productive because you're learning uh, something that you didn't have. Hey, no shots at social media. God knows I'm on it all the time. But you know, <laughs> everything has its place. And this is really about investing in yourself, right? This is about doing something that gives you satisfaction and makes you happy. Yeah, and I, I just feel like education is something that you can uh, invest in, in uh, at every age. Like, it doesn't matter. So it's I think it's it's a very good business model That because I didn't know about it, honestly. Uh, but when I there looked at go. it, I was like, wow, th this is really cool. Like, I mean, I am, I'm a terrible musician. Like, I, I'm terrible at playing any sort of thing. But that's cool for people who can play. Um, well, I just think it's interesting that you're so, what they say, you're extremely online, right? <laughs> and this category is not even something that you're familiar with, right? Yeah. And so it tells you something. And, you know, Truefire has been around for a long time, but, you know, the business looked very different in the 90s before people had access to, to you know, uh, readily uh, available internet. And now the businesses look completely different. The model's different. And I'm in the process of trying to modernize these platforms um, and build them. Speaking of that, uh, so because you mentioned modernize, so what are your like kind of aims and hopes for Truefire Studios? Like, what do you think? Yeah. What, what are some of the things that you can mention? 
So we definitely talked about the idea of shining a brighter light on the category in general, which is, you know, getting the word out about the value and, you know, the incredible, uh, I think, opportunity that online music learning represents, right? So that that's part of it. The other part of it, about it is what we're trying to do is pull together the best teachers, learning tools, courses, content, all the important instruments and create, creating the most impressive, widest variety online music educational resource that the planet's ever seen. So we're very, very ambitious. Um, we like to talk about this idea of um, like the gold standard, but you know, like a trophy asset um, so that if you want to learn anything online, we are the definitive place to come to whether it's piano, uh, you know, vocals, guitar, bass, drums, you name it. And so um, our strategy is, uh, you know, an M&A strategy, which is we're, we're building certain features, products, and, and uh, content areas ourselves, but we're also looking to acquire businesses that are in the space that we think are going to help um, create this trophy asset that I, that I just have been describing. And um, you know, in June, we, we bought Artist Works, which was one of the companies I mentioned earlier. Um, you know, they've got an incredible business and they've been around for about 12 or 13 years. So this is not like a startup. We're not creating, um, you know, products and services from scratch. We're aggregating these services together and supplementing them with modern technology, uh, you know, really developing our content infrastructure, our marketing infrastructure, our, uh, all of our technology and data um, in order to better serve students. But also, I, you know, something we haven't talked about is our biggest and most important strategic partner in all this is artists. You know, we represent a real opportunity for artists who would like to establish a legacy for their craft to reach their most you know, passionate fans through these products. And you know, we, pay, we pay good, good and fair rates. Yeah. So, you know, we represent a real revenue opportunity for, for artists who want to come in and be part of our educator network. And that's a super important part of what we're trying to establish. We're trying to establish a platform that also helps support working artists. Yeah, no, that's great. I think also that, I mean, this is, that would be also so cool that because I know so many artists, they are always looking for management or representation. That would be something also that I'm sure you guys could put it under this umbrella, but I'm not sure how competitive that market is or business is. But that's I'm just saying there's like a big opportunity for that. Oh, there, there are so many opportunities. You know, one of the things I've noticed during uh, the you know the lockdown days of the pandemic were a lot of musicians started just teaching on their own through Zoom, yeah. or you know people were doing vocal lessons and you know they were using social media to promote themselves or they were recording their own courses and making their courses available for sale through, you know, through a storefront or through Patreon or, or, or something like that. And um, I think a lot of artists realize that, you know, if, if the road, you know, gigging isn't an opportunity because of, um, you know, COVID restrictions or what have you, then um, education is a great way for, for them to reach their most, uh, you know, engaged audiences and also make uh, a living wage. Exactly. Especially because like they can connect with people and that's yeah. like, it's a huge thing. I think, I think we are so used to now like being on zoom or just doing online shows or going live. Um, it's it just so such a different feeling. I feel like versus before I never appreciated, but nowadays we don't have so much in-person opportunities. So I think it is a great thing, especially for artists. 
Right. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. And I think that coming out of this time and hopefully, um, hopefully we don't backslide, but um, yeah. I think things will, will change. Um, and I think that a lot of the awareness and understanding of what these platforms represent will come from the artists themselves, many of whom are new to teaching. Um, but I think we'll understand that this is a really great way for them to connect with their, with their fans. For sure. For sure. So uh, these are some things that's more related to management and business side, because this sure. is something also people are interested in. So what are some of the things that you do like day to day as a CEO at, at True Fire Studios versus like uh, the Pocket Cast or other place you have done? Um, because I know, obviously, the CEOs have certain position, certain things that they have to look at, but I'm sure it's a different business that that could be different. Like maybe walk us through it. Yeah. So. Part of it is where is the business in its life and what are the goals of the business, right? Mm -hmm. So Pocket Cast was small and growing and we were trying to figure out, okay, so what are the right revenue models and, you know, how do we staff the company in the right way? And, you know, and a lot of the foundational stuff that you need as a business is just starting to grow and mature, right? And that's more of a startup mentality. Um, you might say, you're trying to establish product market fit and how that product market fit can uh, lead to the creation of a business that can sustain itself and grow over time, right? Uh, and that was a lot of our, our, uh, our focus at Pocket Cast, understanding things like, well, can we help people who wanna create premium podcasts, um, you know, can we help them create a marketplace through Pocket Cast and reach the right people? And you know, can we make money by helping producers of content that way or, you know, do we create premium features and do we work with, you know, the users and, you know, create a freemium model? And is that, is that how we do it? And so a lot of that was business strategy, revenue strategy, and then growth. How do you think about making sure more people know about Pocket Cast, try Pocket Cast? We had a lot of success with, with PR. We were, you know, in the New York Times, The Verge, The Wall Street Journal, uh, you know, Gizmodo and Gadget. Like it was a very popular time for people to be writing about uh po about podcasting and yes. we were we were all over which was really great and helped us grow very very quickly true fire studios is a completely different set of challenges it's a bigger company by far much bigger company maybe 10 to 15 times as big and you know is in terms of staff probably you know three to five times the size of the staff and you know the business models at these companies are pretty well established um and and it's a it's a in uh, most of the time, it's a, a subscription model, right? You can subscribe and get access to all of our content on, depending on the platform. And then we also have some a la carte courses you can just purchase and download or, or stream if you like, right? And so we have those business models, but they're pretty well established. And so for us, it's more, um, for me, I spend most of my time thinking about, do we have the right people in the right roles, right? So how are we staffed? Do we have, um, are we thinking about all of the the critical areas of the business and do we do we have um you know the 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 best possible fit of person for each one of those roles right um what's our uh, uh what's our growth strategy again like how do we think about um growing our market share how do we think about improving our products how do we think about improving the content on our platforms how do we think about reaching more people and then, you know, just thinking, th thinking about things like, um, you know, who, who might be a, a, you know, another good fit for the platform, you know, what kind of partnerships can we develop, what kind of investments should we be making in technology and people and so on. So it's more 
it's it's they're equally strategic, but with a slightly different focus because of the relative maturities of the business. Of course, yeah, that totally makes sense. Uh, so, what is something also you would say like different? Because I have heard this from so many people that because you are a CEO. But you, there are so many people who also like founded the business, then they they were also the CEO. But then afterwards, they're like, because they're so emotionally attached to the business, they actually, um, you know, like they, they, they def- definitely quit. So what would you say like that something different about it, being a CEO of a company that's already built versus a company that you would like you launched yourself? Yeah, no, I, you know, the, my experience with being a founder Mm-hmm. is very different because um, uh, other than running my own, you know, management business as a kid, working with some artists and producing demos back when I was in my like mid twenties, yeah. I mostly worked for companies um, at, you know, as an employee was hired rather than a founder. Now I've spent a lot of time with founders and no, many of my close friends are founders and it is a very different world. And obviously there is a sense of emotional uh, attachment and some founders wind up making great CEOs and I can, you know, list a number of them. And then some folks, you know, need to bring in help. Look, the guys from Google, as brilliant as they are, brought in a CEO. It happens. It's not, it's, it's no, there's no shame in that at all. What I would say is, um, you know, uh, I have taken roles where I have been interested in the, uh, in the, in the area and I've wanted to contribute to that area. And I feel like there's a good fit, um, for me in the company, but, um, you know, I, I don't know that there's any hard and fast rules you can look to around this. Some founders are able to scale and some founders want to bring in, um, want to bring in help. In my case, in the job I'm in now and in, and in a pocket cast, I wound up partnering very closely with the founders. The founders were all involved at pocket cast, the two founders, um, and I are still, are still very close and, and I admire them and, and I'm rooting for them on the sidelines. Um, in the case of, uh, true fire studios, I'm, working closely with the founders of Truefire, Jamplay, Fader Pro and Artistworks every day. And what I'm trying to do is help them grow their businesses. And I really believe in this idea of uh, servant leadership. My job is to help everybody in the company be successful. It's not about me. It's about what we are doing to support one another and what I am doing as a leader to support the founders and their teams in growing and achieving their goals. Of course. Uh, you mentioned you actually did management a little bit on your own uh, when you were uh, in your 20s. Did you ever think of like launching something on your own later on? Um, I have from time to time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is very, very hard yeah. uh, to be a founder. It's it's hard work. And what I what I've noticed about founders, this is not always the, the case, mm-hmm. but what I've noticed about a lot of founders who I know is that they were always founders even when they were kids, yes. they, were the one, they were the ones that were going door to door with a shovel going like, can I shovel your walk in the snow? Or they had little side gigs or they were trading baseball cards and they had their own baseball card trading business or, or something like that. They were always thinking about how they could fill a need or create a service or yeah. deliver value. And that is something that is consistent you know, in their lives and is something that's been there all along. Or they're builders. They're just people who've always liked to build things. Maybe they, you know, obviously we're talking a lot about technology-enabled businesses. And so you have people who are developers and who are, you know, software engineers. And they've always wanted to build things. And they thought to themselves, well, maybe uh, I can build something that I can develop a business on top of. And the fact of the matter, though, is is that 
founders in some cases, not always, are born rather than made. And sure, there are there are people who become founders later in life and so on. But I, it's amazing how many of these founders, if you saw them when they were eight or 12 or 15, they were already founders then. <laughs> Yeah, they were already doing something. That is so true. I have like been reading so many on entrepreneur, like Inc.com. And so many of them are actually true because they were talking about like when they were 12, they had like a website or they built yes. something that like, got broken or like, but they still kept building it or doing something new. So I feel like I that totally makes sense. So what is one piece of advice you would give to your younger self or something that you have learned that you were just like, wow, uh, I wish that I knew or something that like you were worrying so much that now you just like, I wish I didn't even think about it. Right. Um, wow. What a great question. So, I mean, there, there are probably a few things. Um, one of them is whatever you think is important now, it's probably not that important. Right. <laughs> uh, I used to worry all the time. Like, I don't know anybody in the business. How am I going to get started? I remember watching MTV and just thinking to myself, you know, how do I get closer to the business and feeling like life was passing me by. And in fact, all that worry, not one minute of the worry ever helped me figure out what my path was. And so what I think I would tell the, the earlier version of myself is even if you do something to uh, address the worry for an hour a day, that hour will compound. And so it's much, much better to be in action than to sit around and worry. And the minute that I got busy was the minute that my life turned around. It's just by doing, right? And it doesn't really even matter. It's not like I got a job at a record label and everything worked itself out. You know, I, I, I went in lots of different directions. I worked in corporate at a big media company when I came out of grad school at a company called Bertelsmann, which at the time owned a record label and Random House and a whole bunch of other assets and produced American Idol. And, you know, it was cool, but it was not exactly what I wanted, but it got me one step closer. And then I went to work. That was, as I mentioned, it was then called Clear Channel. And I had a lot of people saying, well, you know, that's not cool. Like, that's just a bunch of old radio stations. But that got me a little bit closer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, being in motion was the point. And so part of it is like, it's about the steps that you're taking. There's no arrival. There's no place you get to. It's a constant series of motion and movement. And to be in movement is preferable to you know, to sitting still and worrying. I mean, it's great to sit still, but then you just need to follow your breath. And if you're worrying, you're not doing it right. True. I think taking action always speaks louder than just like thinking, thinking always like, oh, how am I going to do this? If you don't do it, then you're never going to know how it goes. Right, exactly. Yeah. And not being afraid to fail. And I think I was, you know, I was, um, I think one of the things that's hard for people who are good students, right? Like I, I, um, I went to a prep school in Northern New Jersey. Um, it was a good school and I went to a good college and I, I'm not saying that it was like school was a breeze for me, but I, I tended to get pretty good grades and I felt like it came relatively easy to me. Like, you know, I had to work, but it, you know, I, I knew how to do that. Mm -hmm. Right. And unfortunately that sometimes doesn't set you up for success because a little bit of hardship when you're young really helps you. I didn't really experience that hardship until after I had graduated and I was looking around and I had a job, but I was like, it's not really an interesting job. And what am I going to do with my life? And, you know, then I quit that job, that first production job I had, because I felt like I could do the job that my boss was doing even better. And I was a little bit adrift and I didn't know what to do with myself. And, you know, the fact of the matter is that was when I experienced the hardship. And then when I 
finally started to, you know, put my life together and take one step at a time and move into different roles. I had hardships learning, you know, what it was like to have to have to deal with challenges at work. And so because things had come relatively easy to me early in my life, I had to get a little bit of uh, school of hard knocks a little bit later on. Uh, and, you know, you need to suffer setbacks and defeats in order to be able to build on them. I remember when I first joined the, you know, iHeart back in 2005, I worked for a, a boss who was very demanding of me. And I made a mistake in a, a product that we were rolling out that was going out on hundreds of websites. There was an issue because we were inviting people to submit music videos for unsigned acts that were going to be hosted on the radio station websites. And it turns out that we didn't have a profanity filter. And so oh. there were tons of videos that were being uploaded with content that was not appropriate uh, for radio stations, even mm -hmm. for their websites. Yeah. And we hadn't, even, we hadn't thought of it. And it was a huge miss. And it was my responsibility. And I remember just thinking to myself, well, I'm going to get fired. My career here is over. I'm done. And, you know, I was just resigning myself to my fate. But I'll tell you what, I learned so much from, <laughs> from that uh, experience. <laughs> I, I was lucky enough that they, you know, they were understanding and they didn't let me go. But I learned so much more from those setbacks than I ever learned from, you know, getting an A in a history course at Columbia University. No, and I just feel like, like mistakes are like the best experiences because you learn, like, because like, I mean, it sucks, but also you learn from it that like you don't make that again. Everybody says this and it, everybody understands it, but like there's the difference between understanding something intellectually and then feeling it in your bones and having the emotional imprint of the experience impact you in a, in a visceral way. That's when you learn, when you feel the cascade of shame <laughs> coming down and you're like, oh my God, I should have caught this and I didn't. But I'll tell you what, that burns it into your memory in a way that learning a fact or a figure or memorizing something never will. Yeah. I feel like that's why like Education is great, but that's that's why experience speaks so much like louder than education because you actually experience it, like work experience. Yeah, and that's yeah. that's the that's how you grow. That's how you grow. It's those moments of struggle and conflict that help you, um, you know, shed your skin and become something bigger, better, more interesting than you might have been before. For sure. So where can everyone find you if they are looking for in this, like a career in this industry or just wanted to connect uh, LinkedIn or Twitter? No, I mean, you, can, you can search, search me on LinkedIn, o, mm -hmm. Owen Grover. That's easy. And then I'm O-G-R-O-V-E-R, -O -E O Grover on, uh, on Twitter. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming to the show. I really appreciate it. Oh, it was great to talk to you. Bro. 